are dismissed for children's church. I'd like to read something that I ran across that was put on one of the Campus Crusade sites regarding the situation in Ukraine. Uh, I don't know if that's been on your heart. It certainly has been on a lot of people's heart of what's going on there. The part we don't hear about is what the Lord is doing with the Christians that are there and the ministries that they have. I just want to read this this to you. So today we took people out of Chernev. In my ears are the cries of people, Take us away, please, I am ready to pay any money. Are you coming tomorrow? Take my wife and kids. We'll go in your trunk. And two women jumped into my trunk. We brought to Kiev more than 50 people in six cars. They don't have big cars there either. People pushed in as much as they could. It was a terrible trip. There's a lot of destruction in the city. Explosions are visible and audible. Yet God provided good conversations about him on the way to Cherniv. On the way back, it was difficult to speak. People were under great stress. It was deathly silent. I prayed with them on the road. I asked if they would mind if I listened to a sermon, because it helps me to reset my mind and soul. They unanimously said, yes, certainly. So altogether, we listened to two sermons by Tim Keller on the Lord's Prayer and Suffering. Thanks for the prayers and support. God is good and faithful. And then one other person. We feel your prayerful support. Sometimes something really incomprehensible happens. As if someone's invisible hand actually takes bullets and shells away from us, and they fly past us. We emerge victorious from very difficult situations as if someone is accompanying us. We become invisible to the enemy. We see even in the dark, and we know what to do and how to do it. It inspires us and gives us strength. We believe the Lord Jesus himself is for Ukraine. We ask you not to stop. Support us and continue to pray. We really need you. So the Lord is doing amazing things, but it's a horrible situation. Uh, so, time for Children's Church. I just wanted you to go with that in your minds. There are part of the church is suffering in the world. We all suffer. So let's pray. I thank you, Father, that as we're seeing in the book of Revelation, things really are not as they seem. Events that we see often mask the fact that you're still in control. Part the curtains, Father, for us and help us to see who's really in charge and help us to surrender our lives to you in all ways. Help us, Father, this morning as we consider Jesus' last week on earth and as we consider how that impacts us as we understand the book of Revelation. Would you help us, Father, to see and understand and respond? Make our, arts, our, heart, our ears receptive and our hearts open. Don't let our hearts get hardened or our ears close. Uh, break us out, Father, of any kind of spiritual lethargy that we might have. Uh, help us to see what's going on around us and to understand that you have a, pr- a place for us, a plan for us, each one, wherever, however humble that might be. Just thank you for all these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to try something. Um, I hope it succeeds. I'm going to try to blend Palm Sunday with an overview of the book of Revelation. Could be quite a gymnastic feat. We're going to try it. So I'm going to start with one of the texts. And it's interesting that the triumphal entry into Jerusalem by Jesus is one of the, one of the few things actually covered by all four Gospels. So I'm going to read uh, Luke's account. 
in Luke 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found out just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. So they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and on earth. Uh, <clears throat> in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Not just wept, he lamented loudly over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then moving over to the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So as you've already seen this morning, this is the day that we commemorate the beginning of Jesus' last week here on earth, what we often call Holy Week. And the week begins, of course, with, with Jesus entering into Jerusalem as the Messiah and King, and ends with his crucifixion, burial, and his resurrection from the dead. And today, the beginning of that week, we call Palm Sunday or the Triumphal Entry. Now, Jesus' last week, prior to his crucifixion, is a time of great insights that are coupled with a whole lot of great misunderstandings as to what his purpose really was in coming to earth. That links somehow, we're going to see, with the book of Revelation, because we also need to reckon with insights and misperceptions, misunderstandings of what its purpose is and how we should understand it and apply it to our lives. So back to, the, to Luke's account, it has a backstory that I didn't read to you in the book of Luke. Jesus is on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem for the last time, and he leads his entourage of disciples and followers toward Jerusalem. He's already visited the town of Jericho. And there, Jesus hears a very loud cry of a blind man, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In response to this plea for help, Jesus restores his sight. However, even in his blindness, he was given a divine insight and saw that Jesus is the king, the king that God promised long ago to King David, which put him miles ahead of most of the rest of the crowd. 
So as Jesus enters Jericho, a wee little man climbs a sycamore tree to better see Jesus. And it's safe to say that Zacchaeus, who was a Jewish director of tax collectors, was dishonest and unpopular. So Jesus changed the ethical issue as he draws Zacchaeus into his kingdom, and Zacchaeus makes restitution, where he's been dishonest, proving that God had actually changed his heart. So Jesus redeems one here who did not deserve it, one who was hated by everybody. The insight is that the ones who recognize the true king and serve him are not part of the elite, but they're the outcasts or the flyover people. The misperception of Jesus' identity shows up when we see the Jewish leaders, even after this, still dead set on killing him. Well, that's followed in Luke's gospel by Jesus telling a parable, and starting in verse 11 in chapter 19. And the reason why he tells the parable, he says, is because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, the element of this very pointed parable include a nobleman going to a far country to receive a kingdom. And while he's gone, he leaves assets with loyal servants, telling them to be good stewards while he's gone. Now, when he comes back with his kingdom now in place, he reviews the stewardship of his servants to whom he entrusted assets. Two of them did well, but you remember the third one did nothing with what he was stewarding. Now, all are rewarded with life. They all got life. But the blessings go to the one who is the most faithful. And it doesn't seem fair. But then what Jesus did with Zacchaeus wasn't fair either. So following his dealing with the servants, the nobleman who is now the king, execute those who rebelled against him. Similar themes to Zacchaeus' story. A few will recognize Jesus as king and will live to serve him in his kingdom. A life-changing insight. But most will keep hating him and die in their sins at the time of judgment. The faithful ones are shocked into greater faithfulness, while those on the outside of God's kingdom don't really hear what Jesus is saying. And that's how parables work. That's also how symbols in the book of Revelation work. That same sun that softens wax so you can mold it is also what hardens clay into bricks. So in these accounts, we see insight mixed with misunderstanding. Bartimaeus recognizes that Jesus is David's son and therefore of royal blood. Zacchaeus discovers the true mission of the Messiah while everyone else, including the disciples, are caught up in the procession supposedly leading to Jesus being crowned king in Jerusalem. And that parable shows insight on the part of two of the nobleman's servants with misunderstanding exemplified by the third servant along with all of his rebellious subjects. And also in all three of these accounts, Jesus is declaring the fact that he is the king. No more secrecy. No more, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. He knows that the end of his earthly ministry is coming soon, and he wants people to finally recognize who he is, recognizing that he is king, knowing full well that they're going to reject his rule over them because he does not fit their mold. The creator of the world does not meet their expectations. The king of kings wants the hearts of people to be exposed because they would rather kill the king than submit to his rule on his terms. 
The heart of those who are outside of Christ will condemn themselves because they will not, they will only let the king rule over them on their terms. Well, what are Jesus' terms? Well, in Luke 9, he tells us, He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and the third day be raised. That's Jesus' terms. So with these kind of a background, we kind of circle back now to Palm Sunday, the Sunday preceding Passover. <clears throat> and basically what we've seen in the events leading up to this day, we would expect that this momentous event would once again be another event that combines insight and misunderstanding. And we are not disappointed. The great insight was that Jesus really is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the son of David, the long-awaited ruler of Israel. The fulfillment of all of God's promises. But the great misunderstanding was that he would enter Jerusalem and by his own mighty works at that point, take his throne and set Israel free from Roman oppression. But it wasn't going to be that way, as we well know. He would take his throne, but it would be through voluntary suffering and death and resurrection. The first, Peter, the first sermon that Peter preached after the resurrection comes to an end with these words. This Jesus God raised up so that he was exalted at the right hand of God. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus is now king. He says he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So Palm Sunday was a day of insight and a day of misunderstanding and crushing disappointment for most people. And that insight that was there gave great joy, and the misunderstanding brought about destruction. The murder of Jesus a few days later, and destruction of Jerusalem about 40 years later. And Jesus saw it all coming with a loud lament and with tears. And the people who followed Jesus down the Mount of Olives towards the temple saw a prophecy being fulfilled before their eyes and didn't even realize it. In Matthew's account of this verse, of this event, we read, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! So a divine insight, once again, the crowd of people in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover sing from Psalm 118, which is kind of one of those, those special psalms for special occasions when people made their ascension into the temple itself. And they said, save us, we pray. That's Hosanna. By the way, despite what the video said, Hosanna actually does have a meaning. Uh, it's it's Yoshina. Uh, save us, we pray. Save us, O Lord. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People were singing that as Jesus went up down the hill. So this word Hosanna really is a cry for help. Lord, save me. And the cry is addressed to Jesus as the son of David. So there's no doubt in the people who were there for this special, this festival of Passover that this Jesus was the Messiah. He is the heir to the throne of David. Confirmed by the exclamation that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so when the people repeated their Hosanna to God in the highest, it's like saying, 
remember at Jesus' birth, glory to God in the highest. Except that now it's a call for deliverance. Deliver us. Save us. So they're praising God for sending them the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. Now, that's a great insight, but it's also coupled with a great misunderstanding about what Jesus' mission really was. It wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection that the apostles saw that the events of this day actually fulfilled a major prophecy from the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So that verse, especially verse 10, tells us how this righteous yet gentle king is going to bring peace to the nation and extend his rule over the entire earth. But it doesn't tell us how it's going to happen. We know now, because we can look back at the books of the New Testament and to the history of his church since that time, that it's not going to be by armed conquest. Several have tried it, it didn't work. But these verses mention that these four insights about this king who is celebrated on Palm Sunday, although his real purpose was hidden at that time to the folks who saw it. First of all, he's just and righteous. He's the only one who can really bring peace like this. He teaches that there never be any strong or lasting peace apart from the Messiah who is actually energized, animated by righteousness. So righteousness is not just a code of rules, a set of, of conduct, you know, following a, a certain set of rules, he's inherently the one who actually operates this way with integrity, from the inside out. And the Messiah King also possesses salvation. I mean, the King is salvation, and his presence is salvation, and he has the power to bestow it on whoever he wishes. He calls his subjects into his kingdom. He is the means of deliverance. Also, also says that he is gentle, or the way to say the word, lowly. And lowly is probably a better word because it actually means afflicted. And it carries forward the description of the Messiah that were given in, in Isaiah chapter 53 that's very familiar to you. I'm going to read it anyway. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So keeping with his character, the Israel's Redeemer King is going to present himself to this people, not with outward pomp and ceremony, or with a display of worldly power, but he says, but riding on a donkey. I mean, kings don't ride on donkeys as a rule, even then. While a war horse is kind of like an armored Humvee, a donkey is like your basic mini pickup truck. Riding on a donkey really is a symbol of a peaceable intent of his mission. He's not there for war. 
which follows what Jesus follows that up in Mark chapter 10 by saying that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So this triumphal entry is not an isolated event that all four gospel writers used as some kind of a proof text for what Jesus did. And Zechariah didn't see it as an isolated event in the Savior's life, but really the whole of his life. And the gospel writers see it the same way. It's not just an isolated verse from an obscure prophet. They saw the fulfillment of summarizing the entirety of Jesus' life on earth to that point, recognizing just one striking picture, one striking symbol. It's the image capture of a three-year video. The actual entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem in the way Zechariah describes it, was an express declaration that this passage was fulfilled by the Messiah in the fullest sense of who he is. And the fourth part we think we can glean from this too is that his rule extends far beyond Israel and Palestine. We can look back and we can see that now. He came to publish peace to the nations. Not only peace is just no, no outward conflict with another because that really hasn't happened. But a deeper inner peace, the shalom, the removal of hostility between man and God and from one another as well. He has the power and authority to speak into existence what he wills. Of course, it was pretty easy for these crowds to get caught up in this messianic fervor especially because they'd just been reminded of Jesus' miracles. Remember, it wasn't that long ago, historically, when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They knew he was a prophet. As the text says, they hailed him as their coming king. But they had not grasped the inevitable suffering of the Messiah, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And it was difficult, even those who were the closest to Jesus, to understand his ride into Jerusalem as the promised Messiah was not to ascend a throne, but it was to die on a cross. So we see this great combination of insights of King Jesus with great misperceptions about the manner of his coronation. We also see that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, so there's continuity between the Testaments. We also see Jesus using a parable to shock his followers into greater trust in him while at the same time bringing judgment on those who refuse to follow him. So considering how people responded to Jesus on Palm Sunday should help us in understanding why the book of Revelation is so strange. In particular, the events of Holy Week are heavily laden with symbols. Jesus rode a donkey down the hill to Jerusalem, symbolizing a king, a king with peace in mind, the people laid palm branches at his feet, symbolizing Jesus being victorious over his enemies. These were literal actions with greater impact because they were understood as being symbolic. And we hear about earthquakes, we hear about tsunamis, we hear about an invasion of Ukraine. But what is it that really moves us to help in some way? Is it just hearing about it? I mean, actually seeing a tsunami actually seeing civilians killed in a missile strike will move us much more deeply to offer support, whether it's prayer or finances or helping and relief efforts. And in a similar way, 
Symbols are the way we combine hearing with seeing. What do you do when you see our nation's flag being carried by a color guard in front of a parade? The flag is just a bunch of colored fabric on a pole. It's what it symbolizes that draws us to our feet and remove our hat. Symbols are often more powerful than words alone. Now, Marty and I are taking an approach to interpreting and applying the book of <clears throat> Revelation that might be at odds at certain points with what you've already read or been taught before. You've probably already tumbled to that. We want to be up front with you about our approach. So I'm taking a little bit of time this morning to try to put some of the visions of Revelation in context and also in the context of Palm Sunday. Next Sunday, Marty's going to have a special message on Easter regarding the Lamb, and then we'll pick up with chapter 6 the week after that in the book of Revelation. The chapters that are laden with heavily laden with visions, chapters 6 through 20, are coming up. But before that, probably a good idea to kind of lay a little bit of a foundation, a little bit of groundwork. Because keep in mind that anyone, anyone, who interprets the book of Revelation is going to come up with a combination of insights and probably misunderstandings. However, unlike the situation in Palm Sunday, we need to keep in mind that misunderstandings of Revelation do not impact your salvation. Despite what you may think or been told. If only all our Christians could agree on that little fact. So first of all, I want to let you know how we're not going to be treating the book of Revelation. I mean, I'm ashamed to admit it, but for my, my approach for most of my Christian life has been to read through it once a year without getting much out of it. Put it almost in the same category as Leviticus. <laughs> it was just too difficult to tackle in trying to understand what is he talking about. And along with that, it's coupled with the fact that I was turned off by those who already had it figured out, diagrammed, cataloged, and set in concrete to the point that it's their way or the highway. I'd seen too much of that. I'd had personal experiences with Christians who adopted that approach, and they were not very pleasant. And that level of dogmatism for the book like, a book like this still seems out of place. Let me give you an example. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I just want to give you an example. <laughs> How many of you read books or seen the movies of the Left Behind series? I got a few. Okay. For the rest of you, here's the storyline. One day, millions of people throughout the world disappear. With no apparent reason for their disappearance, those who remain are left to wonder if their loved ones are alive, are being punished, or if they themselves are the ones being punished. And around the globe, people come up with all kinds of different explanations to why this happened, different theories. And one theory is that the event marks the beginning of the end of days, since Christ has prophesied to return to collect the souls of the faithful, called the rapture of the church, often portrayed by others as the beam-me-up theology, or the ejection seat theology. Now the problem this leads for those who are actually left behind when this disappearance happens, is whether or not they were faithful, or whether they can change their lives now so that they will be acceptable to Christ. Now, according to one group in this series uh, that describes this, this particular theory, a group from what's called the New Hope Village Church, 
The people on earth are going to suffer seven years of trials. The Antichrist will rise and grow powerful and have dominion over those who remain. And during those seven years, many will perish. However, those who survive will witness the second coming of Christ and be accepted into his glory. And I have done our quote that was that the, um, Peter Jenkins gave in the year 2000. In an interview, he said, Left Behind is the first fictional portrayal of events that are true to the literal interpretation of Bible prophecy. It was written for anyone who loves gripping fiction, featuring believable characters, a dynamic plot that also weaves prophetic events in a fascinating story. Well, this approach to the book of Revelation sees the visions of Revelation as describing events that take place over a seven or maybe a three and a half year period with the two Christians being raptured into heaven to be with Jesus before the real fireworks begin. Now, where that rapture occurs is not stated in the book of Revelation. You have to read it in from the outside, from a previous understanding. You have to actually, I would say, eisegete in the rapture someplace. You've got to find a place for it. So this approach claims to interpret events and beings, literally, unless you're forced to interpret them figuratively or symbolically. Now, this leads, I think, to a wide-open invitation to speculation about the meaning of terms in the book. Like, are locusts really Black Hawk helicopters? Um, what is the harlot? What are the witnesses? What is the beast? And so on. Now, the approach we're taking is very different from that. And I'm going to explain why. I'm going to try to explain why. The book of Revelation described itself as prophecy. In chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That should tell us that it's not necessarily written in a chronologically arranged timeline of history. <laughs> if you've ever read through the book of Isaiah and thought that it was chronological by time, you're in for serious difficulty. It's arranged topically. It's arranged theologically. That, you know, the, the chronology flip, it goes all over the place. Um, so just like the Old Testament prophets, there's no necessary connection between the order of the visions in the Revelation and the order of the events that are symbolized in the visions. For example, chapter 12 of the book of Revelation says this. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's in chapter 12, verse 5. That's just a piece of it. The first five verses give the story, really, of a recapitulation to the birth of Jesus. Now, the birth of Jesus actually took place, of course, before the book of Revelation was written. But chapter 12 occurs halfway through the book. So if the book is a chronological event, time-wise, somebody messed up when it comes to chapter 12. So it kind of gives us a hint, maybe, that there's something going on here besides just a chronological approach to what's going on in the book. I mean, Revelation, besides being a prophecy, it's also a letter. It's a letter written to seven churches, churches in seven cities anyway, in the Roman province of Asia, but also to all churches at all times, at any time in history. Because the final phrase of each letter contains this, uh, contains this. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. It's looking ahead. And since it's a letter to the churches, its message, including all these strange visions that we're going to see, needs to be relevant to their situation, or else the book is not relevant. It can't be just about writing history beforehand. It has to be more than that. It can't be a book of speculation about some horrible future time on the earth in the future that Christians will escape. Rather, I think it's to let us know that God controls events that happen in our world in a way that end up being where he planned all along, even though the people involved in doing it think that they're doing their own will. Revelation demonstrates that God is truly sovereign over history. And the events that we see that we think are actually real are really not as they seem to be. There's something going on behind the scenes. And God is working behind the scenes to bring all the events to where he wants them to be. And the vast majority of Revelation uses symbols to convey truth. The literary form of the book of Revelation uses symbolism from start to finish. And instead of portraying events and characters directly, most of the time John prevents them indirectly by means of symbols. I mean, Jesus is portrayed as a lamb. Churches are portrayed as lamps on lampstands. Satan is portrayed as a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. We know that because those symbols are actually explained in the text. What about the rest of them? If God had seen fit to offer explanations of what the other, symb- or the other visions mean, there'd be a lot fewer commentaries on the book of Revelation. And it'd be much shorter. Unfortunately, they don't explain. So I'm, our approach is that events in Revelation are rarely literal. They're mainly figurative or symbolic. Well, is that just my idea? I mean, how do we know that? Well, I'm going to try to give a little explanation this morning. We know that because he tells us up front in Revelation 1.1. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant to his servant John. What I want to draw your attention to is that verb that's translated as in this, in this ESV as made it known. That word has a wide variety of meanings. It also means communicated, it also means signified. Now to signify means to communicate by means of symbols. Well, how can we be sure, is that the correct meaning? Is that how we should understand this? Well, the main principle we're going to be using as we go through the book of Revelation is we're going to do our very best to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. We're going to try to avoid, which we can't do entirely, try to avoid preconceived ideas. We're going to try to use and try to compare and help you understand how to compare Scripture with Scripture. So we're going to be using a lot of cross-references to other parts of Revelation and also parts of the New Testament, particularly maybe Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount of Olives, uh, and probably in particular the Old Testament prophets. So how is the word signified then, if that's the correct way of understanding this verb, how is it used in Revelation? So the first place we look is in the context of the book of Revelation itself. 
Well, in chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 3, and then in chapter 15, verse 1, we see the word sign, which is actually the noun form of the word signify. It's the same root word. For instance, 12.1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head, on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, if you look at that literally, a woman like this cannot be a literal adult female human, even if you're not a biologist. <laughs> I had to throw that in. <clears throat> Once again, the word sign here introduces a symbolic figure. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, if you have a cross-reference in your Bible, you might actually see a cross-reference to the book of Daniel, chapter 2, which would be good if you did, because chapter 2, 28, and chapter 2, 45 are really the only places where there is actually a real close parallel with this passage. Now, Daniel chapter 2 deals with the time when the children of Israel were captives in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, who was the one who had taken Judah into captivity, he had a terrifying dream or vision. And he, and he told his wise men around him, Magi, by the way, Magoi, uh, he told them that they faced death unless they can tell him not just the inter- interpretation, he got to them what the dream was too. Now, the wise men, of course, protested right away and saying, yeah, nobody except God himself could understand that. We can tell you the interpretation if you tell us the dream. And he said, no, no, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. And they wanted the king to relent, but he said, no, you, you give it to me or you're dead. Now, in fear for their lives, these wise men approached Daniel, one of the Jewish captives, and after a time of prayer with his three companions, God revealed the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. So then when Daniel goes before the king, he took no credit for being able to interpret the king's dream. In chapter 228, he says, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery, and he has made known, signified, same word, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So Daniel told the king his dream of this, of this colossus, this great big huge statue that he saw that was so, so terrifying, that it was a sign. He told him it was a symbol that represented a whole series of empires. And when he concluded his interview with the king, where he explained the vision and he explained its meaning, then he says, a great God has made known, in verse 45, signified, there's that word again, to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. So the term signified, or made known in Revelation 1.1, is paralleled here, And it tells us that what follows needs to be understood as symbolic or figurative language when you come to works of prophecy. And Revelation has already identified itself as a work of prophecy. So our approach is going to be to interpret the visions of Revelation as symbols, unless the context requires a literal understanding, which you're going to find is very rare. So we're going to see symbols throughout this book. As a matter of fact, one person said, the book of Revelation is one of the most sustained examples of symbolic reality in existence. And if you've read it, you know that. Right? This tumble one after the other. 
Now, sadly to some folks, if you don't take the book literally from their standpoint, you're not rightly dividing the word of truth, and you're on the road to being a liberal or something worse. <laughs> and I've run into that. And my response is that I take the book of Revelation figuratively because I take Revelation 1.1 literally. I take Revelation figuratively because 1.1 I take literally. And I check what that word might mean in other contexts that feed into the book of Revelation. Well, why does John use so many symbols? Ever wondered about that? Well, Dr. Greg Beale, who wrote a rather extensive commentary on the book of Revelation, 1,500 pages worth, um, gave us some hints, which I found helpful. Well, as Marty pointed out last week, John is limited by vocabulary in describing the events and the beings that he sees. So symbols make what he sees that much more vivid. Something much more vivid about a symbol than just prose. But also symbols demonstrate continuity with the Old Testament, especially with the prophets. I would say that Revelation is a New Testament extension of the Old Testament prophecies. All the Old Testament prophecies ended with Jesus. Revelation carries that on into the future. The symbolism also makes us dig deeper into trying to understand what on earth is God trying to say here. And I guess one of the key reasons to me, though, is that John is a prophet. He's writing a book of prophecy. He's in the same lineage as the Old Testament prophets and in Jesus himself, who is the endpoint of all prophecy. Now, symbols were always used in response to a people's lack of repentance and their lack of faithfulness in serving God. All of the prophets use words, they use symbols, they use symbolic actions to warn of coming judgment. Remember that the, in the Old Testament, the prophets brought God's message to the Jewish people who had become anesthetized to holiness. They were numb. The majority, of God, the majority of God's covenant people were unfaithful to God because of long-term habits of capitulation to foreign gods, of serving idols, over a long period of time. Now, there was a remnant of faithful people at all times, but they were also affected by the rampant idolatry that filled their culture. And they refused just to go along to get along, which is what the majority of people did. So the prophets used very vivid symbols, some very scary symbols sometimes, to penetrate stone-hard hearts. So when ordinary preaching and teaching failed to bring about repentance, God used symbols to warn of judgment. And there's a pattern. There's a pattern throughout the Old Testament, there's a pattern throughout the New Testament. I'm going to try to talk a little bit about that. Even after the Israelites were taken captive to Babylon... God warned the Jewish prophets of how difficult their task was going to be in trying to bring the people back to faithful obedience to him. They had a major dislocation in their lives, and yet they were still not responding to God in the way that they ought. And so he warned his prophets. He warned Isaiah. He also warned Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 12, 
the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see, but see not, have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. So Ezekiel doesn't go right after that, go out right after that and then preach to the people. God tells him to give them a sign. And his sign is, put your backpack on like you're getting ready to leave town in a hurry. Prepare yourself for exile. Dig through the wall of your house and walk outside. And when people ask you, what on earth are you doing? You tell them, this is what's going to happen. You people are not paying attention. This is an acted parable. This is, I'm showing you what's going to happen, and I'm going to act it out so you can see it. He wanted a vivid illustration. God wanted to use something very vivid to shock the people into repentance and faithfulness and into obedience. Words just wouldn't cut it. Now Jesus, as the Latter-day prophet, used parables as signs, just like the Old Testament prophets who preceded him. His signs were called parables. In Matthew 13, Jesus ends his parable of the, remember the seed falling on different kinds of soil? By saying, he who has ears, let him hear. Sounds almost like what, the commission to Isaiah and the commission to Ezekiel. That's the same phrase that those prophets used, that God used those prophets when he was commissioned to preach to his people telling them that most people he talks to are going to be unresponsive. So Jesus' disciples ask him, why do you teach using parables? He says, in Matthew 13, he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. That is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So parables are signs to jolt Jesus' followers into repentance and obedience, while at the same time hardening the hearts of those who have already decided to be disobedient. So it offers insight to those who are following Jesus, and it tends to harden the hearts of those who have rejected Jesus. So parables, and I guess prophetic symbols as well, are really there to afflict the comfortable, while comforting the afflicted. Now when we come to the book of Revelation, from the Old Testament now to Jesus, now to the book of Revelation, we see the same hearing phrases like this repeated seven times in the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Each one of those letters ends with some form of he who has ears, let him hear. Seven times over. Then he follows those letters with a series of signs. Not parables this time, but visions just like the Old Testament prophets used. In effect, Jesus is continuing his ministry of parables in the book of Revelation, but he's continuing them from heaven where he resides using the visions in the book of Revelation that he gives to John. It's a continuous process. So that tells me something. That tells me something that the church, even by the end of the first century, was already in danger of becoming like the nation of Israel. That means that they were in great danger even after only 70 years 
after Jesus' ascension to the Father. The church there was not in great shape. Remember how the letters were structured. Have Ephesus at the first letter and the seventh letter was Laodicea. They were in great danger of even losing their standing as a church, as being rejected as being uh, their lamp being taken away. Then the second one, Smyrna, and the next to last one, Philadelphia, they were commended, but they were also told, you're going to face some persecution. It's going to get ugly. Then the middle three, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, kind of in, I guess he's called descending order, uh, are also warned of judgments to come unless they repent, unless they, take away, unless they get away from following Jezebel or other types of individuals that are in the church. Uh, if you're gonna, he says if you compromise with evil, if you compromise in the area of sexual immorality, if you compromise with, by capitulating to authorities who want to take God's place, beasts, he says, if you fail to live out the gospel, he says, you're in great danger. Because the church, remember we're told, and Marty made this very clear, we're to conquer. How do you conquer? You conquer by remaining faithful. You persevere through whatever this world has to, has offers, positive or negative, that tries to replace Jesus in our lives. So if you look at the Old Testament precedent, and Jesus' ministry, we would expect those hearing formulas in Revelation 2 and 3, the, the ones at the end of each letter, should be followed by symbolic visions. That's what happened in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus did with parables. Well, why? Well, that's the scriptural pattern. God uses symbols and signs to shock us, to shock us into seeing spiritual realities that are obscured by daily living and 24-7 news coverage. The symbols in the book of Revelation will either sedate us further or energize us back into submission and obedience to God. This is a serious issue. It was a serious issue when he writes to the seven churches. And it hasn't gotten any better. Because after all, I'm speaking personally anyway, I'm a very skilled rationalizer of sin. And my heart is an idol factory in fairly continuous production, and there's no supply chain issue with it either. <laughs> so I hope that you'll be able to catch how we're going to continue to approach this amazing book. It's a sobering book, but it's also a book of encouragement. It's a book of warnings intended to shock us into conquering by faithful perseverance in obedience to our king. We're also going to be given behind-the-scenes glimpses into God's sovereign control over all events, the ones and the events that surround us and maybe even impact us. We're going to become confident in our Lord despite whatever might come our direction. We're going to be strengthened in the, in the inner person. We really ought to concern ourselves, though. We don't want to respond as if we were anesthetized to holiness. We don't want to be in that situation where of the majority of Israel perhaps the majority of the church, is outwardly, say they're believers, inwardly, their heart's far away. We don't want the word of God to fall on deaf ears. We need to have ears to hear. 
So I just want to close with a question for us to consider. Not just for today, but each time that you come to Scripture. Where am I spiritually insensitive? Where is it that I need to repent and get back on track with Jesus? These things came to mind probably because they're all at a personal level, but lack of response to the poor, to the widows, to the orphans, to the oppressed. Am I spiritually insensitive in that area? How about wrong or strained relationships? Areas where I'm not serving others, and that starts at home, I think. Am I feeding and nourishing my wife? Am I actually attempting to build Jesus into the lives of my children and grandchildren? Am I too busy with my own concerns to actually build meaningful relationships? This is a body, not just a bunch of individuals. Do I place too much emphasis on me? That's always my default situation, my default setting. Maybe in your situation it's social media. It's not an issue for me because I don't use it, but uh, for some of you it could be an issue. I have other temptations. Or not nourishing one another. And remember in, the, in the, those letters to the churches, he was really concerned about the leadership of the churches and the churches themselves not being vigilant about allowing false teachers into their fellowship. Don't think that's just a first century issue. You can probably come up with more things than I did. Um, but the point I want to leave you with is the fact that we may, and probably will, disagree on some of the details that we're going to present as we go through the book. But those details, those differences, do not change your, your nature of your salvation. They don't impinge on your salvation. They're not that serious. So this is a chance for us to pursue seeking truth in love as we grow deeper in love with our Savior and our Lord. While we wrestle with how we go about it. So I'm hoping that we can sharpen one another rather than fight with one another, that we can actually sharpen one another. I think that's probably going to be the case what's going to happen. This is going to be some very interesting things to go through. And I'm not sure that at this point I even understand a lot of it. I'm going to have to try to figure it out as I go. So I appreciate your help there too. You can let me know when I'm off base. Um, Ken's really good at that. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, you've given us a, a daunting task. And it's a very serious task for each of us to try to understand what it is you'd have us do in a world that does everything it possibly can to derail and undermine us. How can we concentrate on you? How can we gain from your word what we need in order to live a life that pleases you. Help us, Father, not to be dull of hearing. Help us not to be those like those who shut our ears off to what your word has to teach us. Please sharpen our ears, improve our hearing to where we can actually understand what it is that you're trying to tell us. And then we can actually complete the hearing by applying what you teach us. So I thank you, Father, for the wisdom you give us. I thank you for the chance we have to celebrate today. Uh, what Jesus has done on our behalf. I just thank you for your presence in our lives because we couldn't do this without you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.